Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Case number CL 2019-2911. Mr. Depp's claim against Ms. Heard. One, as to the statement appearing in the online op-ed entitled Amber Heard, I spoke up against sexual violence and faced our culture's wrath. That has to change. In the Washington Post online edition, quote, I spoke up against sexual violence and faced our culture's wrath. That has to change, end quote. Do you find that Mr. Depp has proven all the elements of defamation? Answer, yes. Has Mr. Depp proven by a greater weight of the evidence that question, the statement was made or published by Ms. Heard? Answer, yes. The sta- question, the statement was about Mr. Depp. Answer, yes. Question, the statement was false. Answer, yes. Question, the statement has a defamatory implication about Mr. Depp. Answer, yes. Question, the the defamatory implication was designed and intended by Ms. Heard. Answer, yes. Question, due to circumstances surrounding the publication of the statement, it conveyed a defamatory implication to someone who saw it other than Mr. Depp? Answer, yes. Do you find that Mr. Depp has proven by clear and convincing evidence that Ms. Heard acted with actual malice? Answer, yes. Were you surprised by this portion of the verdict all in favor of Johnny Depp? I wasn't surprised. This verdict is a complete repudiation of all of Amber Heard's allegations for both domestic violence and sexual abuse. Again, it's not to say that it didn't happen, but we are in a court of law and she failed to prove those things happen with unbiased, corroborated evidence. And she just, she missed the mark and it cost her her case. Well, Casey, what was missing? You know, there were photographs that were supporting accounts from her sister and friends and a makeup artist. There was the testimony of Amber Heard. So much for the jury to consider. We kept hearing that it was sexual abuse and physical abuse and mental abuse and verbal abuse. And the jury rejected all of it. Why? Well, primarily because it falls down to the credibility of the witness. And in this case, the alleged victim. And as a criminal defense attorney, I try a lot of domestic violence cases. And it's typically he said, she said, even when you have pictures, if the jury is not inclined to believe you, they'll believe that those pictures or your quote unquote evidence is not credible. And oftentimes you have these 
victims of domestic violence that should utilize the system as a shield, but then they utilize it as a sword against the other person for whatever motive. So in this case, I do believe that the jury did not believe Amber Heard and the verdict there showed it. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, I'm sure many of you are aware and have been watching the trial of Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard. Johnny Depp sued Amber Heard over a 2018 article that Amber Heard published in the Washington Post titled, I Spoke Up Against Sexual Violence and Faced Our Culture's Wrath. Amber Heard wrote in the op-ed article, two years ago I became a public figure representing domestic abuse. The article doesn't mention Johnny Depp, but his lawyers said the piece was about him and therefore was defamatory. For those 11 words, Depp sought $50 million. Amber Heard then countersued for $100 million. Johnny Depp had already lost a similar case in the UK in 2020. It was against the Sun newspaper, who published an article calling Johnny Depp a wife-beater. Now, for those who are not aware, the UK courts are much more amenable to defamation claims than American ones, but Johnny Depp still lost the case. The British judge found that the son's characterisation of Johnny Depp was substantially true, in inverted commas. That same trial found that Johnny Depp physically abused Amber Heard on at least 12 occasions. Now, that's a relevant context to this case. Johnny Depp insisted on going back to court, this time in Virginia. Now, it seems so many people have been transfixed by the seven-week trial, and I've had so many requests to cover it, because it's been very confusing what's gone on. So here's part one of my interesting conversation with my special guest, Lucia Osborne Crowley, who is a journalist, writer, author, and staff reporter covering courts and the law for Law 360. She's also a survivor. You'll hear much more about Lucia and her background in the episode. Now, before we jump in, I just want to give a trigger warning. I know many victims and survivors have been triggered by the trial and also by what people have been writing and posting on social media. Please be aware that Amber Heard and Johnny Depp won't see what you're writing and posting, but your family, your friends, work colleagues and others will. They'll see how you talk about victims and domestic abuse and sexual violence, and they'll see what you say about women. In this episode, we do talk about the case and sexual abuse and domestic abuse, and so listener discretion is advised. So without further ado, let's dive into this fascinating interview. Hi, Lucia. I'm really happy to have you on Crime Analyst, and I've been wanting to speak to you for a little while, actually, but I really want you to go ahead, first of all, and just introduce yourself to my listeners. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm a big fan and it's really great to be on here. So thank you. My name is Lucia Osborne Crowley. I'm a court reporter. So I'm based in the UK. Um, I cover the High Court and the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeal. I'm also trained as a lawyer. I work for an international legal news agency called Law 360. I've also uh, written two books about abuse and domestic violence and sexual violence and trauma. So they are called uh, My Body Keeps Your Secrets and I Choose Elena. And one of them has just recently won an award, I believe. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. This week, My Body Keeps Your Secrets, which was published last year, 
won the Somerset Maugham Award, which is a literary prize to encourage young writers to keep going. So I'm very happy about that. Huge congratulations. I think that's such a fantastic achievement. And, and in fact, all the, what you've been doing, because being a lawyer, but you're also a survivor. So you talk very much in terms of your book from the heart about your own experience, but it means that you can understand, uh, particularly in court, victims' experiences and trauma specifically. And I came across your work when you were covering Ghislaine Maxwell's trial, and I thought you did a, a very impressive job of that. So congratulations both on the book and also in terms of your coverage of, of that trial. Thank you. I really appreciate it. These big trials, you know, one of which we'll talk about today, it's tough to kind of get the balance right with this kind of coverage. So I really appreciate that. Thank you. You're more than welcome. And and yes, we are going to discuss Ghislaine Maxwell's trial because that was what I first contacted you about. And then, of course, we've had this very bizarre. I, I guess some people have seen the Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard trial as a spectacle. Others have seen it as entertainment. Some see it as a sport. I mean, I see it as deeply concerning because we are talking about serious allegations, aren't we? It's not in a criminal uh, setting, but it is a defamation case, but with very serious allegations at the heart of it. So that's when I started to see that you were saying things about it. And we had a brief conversation just about some of the processes that happen over here in terms of expert witnesses. But I know you've been following the trial and I know so many people are confused about what was going on. I mean, it lasted just under seven weeks. What was going on? And also we've just had the verdict, which I think has I mean, really, it's polarised so many people. So perhaps let's start with the verdict first of all, and then we'll work our way back. What did you make of the verdict? So a couple of things. I mean, as you said, this was, and I think will continue to be, a very complicated trial. There are lots of issues here in terms of the law of defamation, freedom of speech, the actual allegations at the heart of both the suit and the countersuit. So it's very tricky. And in that vein, uh, the verdict itself is a bit confusing. So we have, of course, primarily a big win for Johnny Depp, who was initially awarded $15 million by the jury. They were then instructed that had to come down due to damages caps to $10.35 million. And that was because the jury found that Amber Heard had defamed him in three statements that she made in the Washington Post. And basically the heart of those three statements was that she was a victim of domestic abuse. She doesn't name Johnny Depp, but the court instructed the jury that they could infer that the piece was about Johnny Depp. So the headline is that her comments about him were defamatory and, you know, and that he won in that regard. However, she also won on one count of her counterclaim she sued him for defamation based on what she called a coordinated social media attack on her and her character, the heart of which was this allegation that she made up this story of abuse. So that claim was about this comments by Johnny Depp's lawyer, whose actions can be attributed to Johnny Depp as principal through the law of agency. The statement was that this was an abuse hoax. And on that, the jury awarded damages to Amber Heard. So what we have here is, as I said, again, primarily a judgment in favour of Johnny Depp, but the jury didn't want to go so far as to allow this idea that the allegations were a hoax to stand. You know, they wanted to say what she said was defamatory because 
she couldn't prove it to us that it was true. However, we're also not satisfied that it was a hoax. So that's really interesting to me. It's a strange kind of middle ground. And unsurprisingly, I think a lot of people are a bit confused about that. Yes, that was Adam Waldman, wasn't it, who was acting on behalf of Johnny Depp. And I know that there was a motion to try and get that thrown out as a counterclaim. There was a move by Johnny Depp to say, well, he should be sued specifically. But of course, as you said, he was acting as an agent for Johnny Depp. And Adam Waldman did play a part in this. We know that he did because we know a an audio clip was leaked and we also know that it was Adam Aldman who framed Johnny Depp as being the victim. So we know that he did play a role. And it's interesting that the jury determined that he had defamed Amber Heard. Now, some people have said that it's not about the hoax part. It's about that specific incident at the penthouse that Adam Aldman said, well, Amber Heard and her friends spilled wine made up the allegation, called police, and that it relates specifically to that, that the friend's part was the hoax. For me, it's actually not clear, even if you look at the verdict, because it does say that the jury were directed when you look at the instructions that they must not take any part in isolation. They must see the whole context of what's said about Adam Waldman. So I was wondering whether you could shed any light on that, because I've gone through the jury instructions, and to me... It's not particularly clear when you look and it says you have to see the whole context and not take anything in isolation in terms of that particular defamation claim that Amber Heard made against Adam Wardman. Yeah, I mean, I've been trying to do the same thing and trying to reach out to, you know, lawyers who who have more experience working in, in defamation more than me. And I haven't been able to work this out yet. As you say, the jury weren't supposed to do what people are assuming they have done, which is that they've awarded that $2 million based on this comment that her and her friends spilled the wine and, and set up a situation that looked to police like there had been property damage or some kind of abuse going on. I mean, this is one of the interesting things about the jury system, isn't it? And it is a great thing, but we don't get an explanation of how this was reached unless members of the jury decide that they want to speak to the press about that. Um, so it could be that we that we never know exactly what it was about those statements from Adam Waldman that led them to award her damages. I just think, you know, I just didn't expect if they were convinced that her statements about the abuse were defamatory, I didn't expect that she would also be awarded damages. And so that's why, I mean, I, you know, I wish if only we could have, you know, been in that jury room. I wish, I wish we could know what it was that convinced them to do that because I do think it's a statement. You know, I do. a lot of people are completely dismissing it because it's a small amount of money, which is understandable. It's nowhere near what they awarded Johnny Depp. But it's still two million, isn't it? Two million is not a small bit of money to most people, not to normal folk. Exactly right. And also, if you think about it, they could have just awarded him slightly less. Um, you know, they could have just said 13 million. Um, but they have intentionally said, no, we think the abuse hoax statement was defamatory, implying that, you know, the elements weren't made out, as in, you know, they couldn't prove that it was substantially true. I want to tell you about my sponsor, Factor. Factor makes healthy eating easy and health and fitness starts with good food. 
Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Fuel up fast with Factors, restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. I've had the chicken parmesan and the turkey chili and zucchini, and they're delicious and I highly recommend them. Factor is flexible for your schedule. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Now, they've done the maths, and Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 and use code crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. That's code crimeanalyst50 at factormeals, F-A-C-T-O-R, factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. So I, I do think it's an intentional act from the jury. I don't think it should be dismissed out of hand because they did it for a reason. And, uh, you know, I think it's very interesting. And I, I would love to know what the thinking is. And I guess it's also partly, it's complicated, I guess, because of the way that those statements were presented to the jury, because that particular statement was a bit of a compound. You know, there was a lot going on in that one statement that they awarded damages on. And the result of that is that we can't know we can't know the specifics. And I'm just going to read the exact instruction, and it's called Mr. Wardman Instruction. You must read those statements in context as a whole. This means you must not seize on any one word, phrase, or image, or consider one particular word, statement, phrase, or passage in isolation. And that's why I took it in its entirety, and it's confusing. And you're right. I mean, in the UK trial, which we will talk about, the judge obviously wrote a 129-page ruling explaining everything. And that really is the difference between, well, there's lots of differences between the judge-based trial and a jury-based trial, and I'm sure we'll get into a little bit of that. But the fact that we don't understand really the reasoning behind the jury's decision, we just know the outcome. But with the judge's ruling, we know the detail of it. And and I think having a judge and having a jury, you know, maybe that was one of the key reasons why we saw different outcomes in the UK, where the judge ruled that 12 of the 14 allegations of domestic abuse he believed were substantially true. And that was clear. Whereas obviously the jury went the other way with the Virginia-based case that also had cameras in court, which we'll talk about. Because I think there's lots of differences, but there's some similarities too. But uh, were you shocked by the jury's verdict? Were you surprised in any way? I was actually. You know, um, it's one of those things where I didn't think that I had a good, you know, I try not to guess with these things because juries are so unpredictable. I felt exactly the same way with Ghislaine Maxwell. And actually coming out of that trial, if I was a betting person, I think I was was slightly more convinced that she might be acquitted. And I was wrong about that. And with this one, so I was, I was trying not to guess, but I found when I heard the verdict read, I found that I was surprised. So, you know, that was when I kind of knew that I wasn't certain that there was enough evidence to prove that those statements were false, just because 
you know, and maybe we'll talk about this, but the statements themselves, obviously the trial became about something very different. The statements themselves were very broad and actually quite vague. I became a representative of domestic abuse. I wasn't sure that there was enough evidence to prove that statement that she was abused in some way by him was false. The jury obviously thought it was, but I was quite surprised. And I was also surprised, do you know what I think I expected? I think I thought it was most likely that he would win, as in that, you know, it would be primarily a win for him, but perhaps that he wouldn't win on all three statements. That's what I was thinking. I thought maybe the the headline that talks specifically about sexual violence, that obviously Amber Heard's team tried to get thrown out because she didn't write it, but it did end up staying in. I thought it was likely that they would rule that to be defamatory, and but I didn't think that all three would they would find defamation. Yes, I mean, the burden, it was a heavy burden on Depp to prove his case. And given that it was really only one event that they had to find that he had abused Amber Heard, and given the vagueness of the op-ed piece. Now, I've written op-ed pieces. I've never written a headline of my op-ed pieces. I've always just written the article, and then there's been a lot of back and forth about things, and you don't have final say on the shape of things, and I've never written the headline. Is is that true of you too? Yeah, yeah, and and I kind of have both sides of this because I have, I have a staff job as a reporter, uh, and I also work freelance, particularly when, when I'm writing books and things. So all of those pieces are opinion pieces, and I certainly never write the headlines. And, and sometimes I've had arguments about this. You know, for example, I, I published a piece about myalgic encephalitis, which is also called chronic fatigue syndrome. And the community, the chronically ill community of which I am a part, are very opposed to chronic fatigue syndrome because it's highly stigmatized. And I didn't want it in the headline. And we went back and forth, but it ultimately it wasn't my decision. And I got a lot of criticism about it. You know, people in my disability community who really weren't happy with a headline with that in it being published under my name. And I had to kind of say, ultimately, it's not up to me. So that is true. You know, I it is true that she wouldn't have had a say over that. And I think legally this is interesting, right? Because it ultimately came down to the fact that she tweeted it with that headline. I was quite surprised by that decision. I, I don't know what you thought, but I reading the case law. I didn't expect that a tweet just with the headline would be enough to constitute her kind of republishing, but in the end it was. Yes, and it's an interesting decision as well that, you know, people have said, oh, well, the case was heard in Virginia because of the Washington Post printing press being in Virginia. But I don't believe that to be the case. If it were the Washington Post who were the defendant, then I could understand that. But let's be real here that, the Washington Post was not the defendant, which I would have expected, much as the Sun was in the UK. It was actually Amber Heard in this case. So choosing Virginia, I suspect, came much more down to the fact of their laws and how they see these sorts of cases, rather than it being heard in, in California, in Los Angeles, with the anti-slap laws, there was a good chance that it would have been dismissed. So I do see that as a strategic decision. Oh, absolutely. Interesting because Amber Heard on the stand mentioned this once, but apart, she said, uh, you know, I wanted this to be heard in California. And, and that fight over jurisdiction was actually quite a bitter one. You know, Johnny Depp's legal team were very, very concerned to keep it in Virginia. And she fought it very hard, obviously, because neither of them lived there. And she really wanted it to stay in California. And it's interesting because she was allowed to mention it once. And then I believe it was objected to 
and the objection was sustained after that. And those are the kinds of things that I agree with you. I do think it's at least open to the jury to infer that that was a strategic decision. And it's interesting that they weren't allowed to hear more about that, I think. You know, a lot of this, it's the same with the UK trial. They were obviously, the judge was very strict about what they were and weren't allowed to say. For example, I don't know if you noticed this, but no one ever said the outcome of the UK trial. So it was clear that a decision had been made that the jury weren't allowed to hear. They referenced the trial, but there were always a lot of objections and they never said what that judge found. So again, I think that's quite interesting that the jury wasn't allowed to hear any of that. And I wonder what the consequences of that might have been. Yes, well, I guess that they would believe that that would be prejudicial to Johnny Depp. But I did follow the 2020 trial. Did you follow it in, at the Royal Courts of Justice? Yes, um, yes. It was very interesting because I felt that the judge understood more about domestic abuse when not normally do we always see that. Um, but I felt that there were certain determinations that were made that led me to believe that he may well have understood the dynamics of domestic abuse and the power imbalance at play. But of course, in that trial, there was key evidence that was suppressed in the US trial. And I'm thinking specifically about medical evidence. And I'm also thinking about the text message from Johnny Depp's PA to Amber Heard, apologising for Johnny Depp kicking her in the back and having no knowledge of it, and the, the PA felt terrible and said that they had told Johnny Depp what he had done and that he had cried and he had said sorry. And there was a clear admission of what had happened and it had been witnessed. And I think that played a key part in that trial. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And there were a number of things. And I, you know, to me, that message stands out as, as the most important one. I think that message is a really key piece of evidence Firstly, because, as you say, it was witnessed and also because it speaks to a major part of Amber Heard's case, which is that he is saying that he's never assaulted me. I'm not saying he's lying. I'm saying he might not know. He may not remember. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. He may not remember. He might be incredibly credible and be truthfully saying, I don't believe I've ever done this. And it still could not be true, if that makes sense. Yes. And I think that that message was key to that because it's clearly stating that he had to be told that he'd kicked her and that he didn't remember himself. So I think that could have been a huge thing for the jury. And as you say, a lot of other medical records, contemporaneous medical records that are, I think, you know, really compelling documentary evidence. I mean, this comes up so often in abuse trials, but there's so many issues with credibility of witnesses because of the nature of memory and because of the nature of how relationships work. And contemporaneous documentary evidence is so vital. 
And so I think it's significant that these things were excluded. And again, I, I haven't been able to, to get to the bottom of it yet. I really want to, to work out what exactly it is that's different in Virginia about the strength of hearsay laws. I mean, I don't know if you know the specifics of this, but, you know, I've never heard of that kind of evidence being excluded before. No. And I think that there was a very clear strategy from Johnny Depp's team. And and let's be frank, it was a team of nine lawyers. And even if we look at this as a defamation suit, to have nine lawyers, that feels very heavy-handed to me for a, a defamation suit. When you think about O.J. Simpson, he had 12 lawyers in a criminal trial where he's on trial for murder. And, and we do see, they were called the dream team. And I felt what I was seeing was something similar with Johnny Depp and his dream team that had a clear strategy. And I felt they outmaneuvered and, and really outgunned Amber Heard's lawyers, a team of three, at literally every step. And they decided most likely to look at what happened in London. That's what I would do if I were on that team. I would look at what happened in London. I would decide what are the key pieces of evidence that are going to be hugely problematic. And then I would be making a case for ensuring that those key pieces of evidence are suppressed. And I'd probably be thinking of positioning Johnny Depp as the victim. And of course, Adam Waldman had already thought that through and had already positioned him by releasing that piece of audio where Amber Heard did admit to hitting him. And actually, in lots of my cases, the victim has fought back or has hit or has even goaded the perpetrator. So for me, that shouldn't have been a revelation in Virginia because we already knew that she had fully admitted to that. And that's when I normally see honesty when someone admits to something that they've done that paints them in a bad light. You called me a liar and yet you're... Yet I watched you lie. You called me a liar? I watched you lie. I You're heard it. I was what? There's not what? You still haven't told me what lie it is. We'll talk but yet to every single time. We'll you know you Travis. do this every single we'll talk time. Talk to Travis. I'm not talking to nobody. No. That. You go Go I don't care. I really could care less. It's you every single time. You latch onto some sort of thing. When I already told you, I don't know what you're talking about. You don't even know what you're talking about. You still haven't even told me what it is. But run with it. You I have told you what it is. No, you haven't. I said to Travis, I said, Good. no, I said to you, hey, okay. tell Travis what just happened. You oh, you careless. told me to do it. You yeah. told me to. You said, go do that. I said, no, tell, tell him what just happened. And I lied. And that you punched me in the <laughs> thing and you, you figured in it the off. face. And you said, no, no, I didn't. What the are you talking about? And I, I watched you lie. And then I, I didn't I punch you, and by the way. You, I'm sorry that I didn't uh, you, uh, uh, punch hit you. Me across the face in a proper slap, but I was hitting you. It was not punching you. Babe, you're not punched. Don't tell me what it feels like to be punched. You, you know, you, even a lot of fights have been around a long time. I know. Yeah, no, I when you have a closed fist. You get punched. You got hit. I'm sorry I hit you like this, but I did not punch you. I did not deck you. I was hitting you. you I don't know what you. the motion of my actual hand was, but you're Fine. I did not hurt you. I did not punch you. I was hitting you. How are your toes? How, what am I supposed to do? Do this? How are your I, toes? I'm not sitting here about it, am I? You are. are That's you, the difference between me toes. and you. You're a baby. Because you start you physical are fights? You such a baby! Because you, the because you start physical fights? I did start a physical fight. Yeah, you did. So I had because, to get the out of there. Yes, you did. So you did the right thing. The big thing. The, you know what? You are admirable. Every single time, what, what, what's your excuse when there's not a physical fight? Then what's the excuse there? 
you're still being admirable, right? Just by running away. And you can sit here and, and call me names, but you get called a name, and what do you do? That's the last insult. You're a baby. You're a hypocrite. You don't do anything that you actually do. You expect from people what you can't give them. If they do something, a taste of it to you, you lose it. But yet you dish it out. I left last night, honestly, I swear to you. Because I just couldn't take the idea of more physicality, more physical abuse on each other. Now, Adam Waldman did an exclusive with the Daily Mail in 2020, which featured this audio. Much emphasis has been placed on it, and many say, due to this, that Amber Heard was the primary aggressor. But did you note at the end, Johnny Depp says physical abuse on each other? That's important. Also, did Johnny Depp know about this audio being given to the press? Well, Wardman did testify that Johnny Depp was present with him when he attended the meeting with the Daily Mail, so I believe that we can conclude that he did know about the exclusive and the audio. So I believe that's evidence of a strategy to reposition Johnny Depp as the victim and Amber Heard as the primary aggressor. Also, I would imagine that Johnny Depp and his team of nine lawyers also made clear decisions about medical evidence. I mean, those notes dated back to 2011 and 12, didn't they? So predated, you know, anything regarding court in, in the UK, gave a clear audit trail, not just around physical things, but what I would call coercive control in terms of her fear that he was being jealous and controlling and wouldn't let her do certain things or go certain places and that she was tearful a lot of the time, but just clear things she was talking to her therapist about that were documented things. Absolutely. And I think you are 100% right. And I think this needs to be talked about much more when dissecting this case, actually, is that his team absolutely outgunned her team. Um, legally, strategically, I mean, in terms of working with what they had, you couldn't fault them. I mean, they know exactly what they're doing. They presented a narrative that worked in terms of trying to get a jury of people to decide that he deserves to come out on top of this. And as you say, in terms of strategically getting certain evidence excluded and her team, while I think they were individually excellent lawyers and did an excellent job, you could tell that they weren't in the same position. You know, you could tell that they were being outmaneuvered. You could tell that they weren't as big of a team and they didn't have the same kind of experience. And there was also just, they weren't, playing to the narrative as much as Johnny Depp's lawyers were, which I don't think Johnny Depp's lawyers should have done, but I think it seems that it worked on the jury and I think Amber Heard's team didn't quite match that in terms of, I don't know, and I just, I think that's really important because when you put it in terms of nine lawyers versus three, the difference in how much that would cost is a lot. He was able to spend a lot more on that team than she was, which is part of this kind of power imbalance that already existed between them, which is part of what we're talking about. And I think what you said about coercive control is really important. I mean, here in the UK, as you know, coercive control has recently been criminalised. It's something that we now have a lot of research about as a kind of key part of domestic abuse. And I feel that that wasn't presented to the jury in a way that perhaps it could have been. So for example, in the Maxwell trial, they had a blind expert who talked about grooming and abuse of power in grooming situations. And it was really effective 
in that she was able to explain some of the more complicated dynamics. And I don't think we got that in terms of jealousy and coercive control. I think we got a bit of it with Dr. Dawn Hughes, but I think particularly with abuse of power and coercive control, there was some content that wasn't covered that that Amber Heard's team could have elicited more testimony on. Absolutely. I mean, that was my key question about where is the expert explaining coercive control and power imbalance? Even if you take the relationship and you say, well, he was 46, she was 23. So he's double her age. Every woman knows what that means, right? Every guy knows what that means. At 23, you're more malleable. And there are times where potentially you go along with things, but he had much more power, wealth, influence, everything, status, kudos, I mean, his career, and she was just starting out. That plays into a relationship. It absolutely does. So if we take that dynamic, and that's how the relationship started, and then we look at what's going on in court, and I just want to say, you know, a court, civil justice and family justice and criminal justice systems, all our systems and processes are set up by men for men to protect men. And here we have Johnny Depp with his huge team sat in court and Amber Heard, and we see the power imbalance even in the numbers on their teams. And it was amazing that no one was even commenting on that, that everything about it was a power imbalance. And just in terms of if we think about how they both behaved, because she was scrutinized, every detail, every micro expression, everything she did, but he wasn't. And he was laughing and joking and seemed to be having a a pretty good time some of the time, not all of the time, but that wasn't placed under scrutiny. Whereas if you had a female who was sat there laughing, joking, smirking, doodling, etc., then she would have been presented in a different way. So, so the rules and regulations and the power imbalance that come in, and I certainly would have liked to have seen somebody talking in there, having been the person that spearheaded coercive control law reform in the UK and pushing for it in America. It's happened in a number of states already and Australia, New South Wales, and more recently Queensland. You know, I feel that when people keep talking about domestic abuse, and even in this trial, a lot was of the emphasis was on physical was on the bruises, was on the split lips, was, you know, the police saying that they were called and they didn't see any evidence of physical things. Well, you can't put, as every victim says, bandages around the psychological trauma, around the head, the invisible bruises, the gaslighting, the love bombing, the power imbalance, the game playing, you know, all these things that are not visible and most victims, they can't even articulate. And that's why we need experts. Totally. And I think there's so many layers to that, not least of which is that she doesn't even specify physical assault or punches or kicks in the op-ed. So even at that level, the emphasis on proving the bruises or how she covered the mark, and it was a bit of a distraction, I think, because at least for the second two statements, leaving the headline aside, because that is a bit more specific, for the second two statements, she talks about domestic abuse. And what I would have liked is to have someone really, really speak about what those two words actually mean and the fact that they don't just mean punches and they don't just mean physical violence. You know, for example, in Virginia, as you will know, in most jurisdictions, when you look up the legislative definition of domestic abuse, it talks about a relationship about power that's based on power and control. It doesn't say domestic abuse is one act of hitting an intimate partner. 
that that's not how the law defines domestic abuse. I thought abuse. we'd moved away from that, you know, and people understanding that it's not about the physical, but yet this whole trial seemed to base itself around the physical. And I, and I would imagine, again, that's intentional from Johnny's legal team, that we all focus on that, that we focus on the makeup, we focus on the injuries. And I think that's hugely problematic, but everyone seemed to to go for that. They were looking for the broken nose, things that she had said too, and we'll perhaps come on to that. But, you know, go ahead and finish what you were saying, that the, you could look up the definition, because I know you did around property damage as well, and you were... Yes, exactly. Well, it's just, as you say, that I found it disappointing because I also thought that at least legally we'd, we'd come quite far from thinking that a single act of physical violence constitutes domestic abuse. And I think the best example of this is audio of her saying, I was hitting you. And everyone saying, well, that's hook, line and sinker. You know, that's the ball game. She's a domestic abuser. And she's the instigator. And she's the instigator, which is not what the law says about domestic abuse. It says, and, and as you said very, very eloquently, the UK judge was able to grapple with what domestic abuse actually is um, under the current legislation. And what it is, is an ongoing relationship that's based on one party controlling the other. That's the thing, you know, and I think that that's what should have been the focus of this trial was who was in control and who was abusing their position of power. And all the evidence suggested that it was him. In the end, as you say, Johnny Depp's team did a, a really good job of making it not about that at all, even though that's how the law defines it. So, for example, I would have loved an expert who was an expert in trying domestic abuse cases, who could have said to the jury, here's the legislation in Virginia, or, or here's a good model piece of legislation, and here's what the courts say that means. And it doesn't mean one particular incidence of violence. It means a relationship between two people that is defined by control. Absolutely. And it's a pattern. You know, if they were looking for imbalance and a pattern and the levels of control and jealousy, they may have understood it slightly differently and better. But unfortunately, there wasn't an expert who explained it in, in that way. And I think that that was very problematic. I mean, also, I think that, and you may have a, a view on this, but I think what his team did particularly well, because I do think they did a very good job and, you know, let's face it, you know this as a, a lawyer and court is about who tells the best story and who the jury buys into in terms of what story sounds more plausible. And I think the, his team did a very good job of focusing on the inconsistencies across time with Amber Heard. And that really was her undoing in, in my view. But what I will also say is that having worked with thousands of victims, you know, some who tell their stories 10 years later, 20 years later, if you're looking for inconsistencies in someone's statement or testimony, you will always find them. You will find it. Right? They're always, they're always going to be there. And therefore, if you take this very black and white view, if you find inconsistencies, therefore you must side with the perpetrator Unfortunately, that's where we're always going to end up. And it doesn't always mean that someone's lying, right? It doesn't mean to say that they're being manipulative and that they're lying and that we shouldn't believe them. Perhaps we should be asking a different set of questions. And I know you understand this probably better than others, because obviously the trauma-informed response and the questions you ask someone who's been traumatized and in the setting you ask them will probably elicit different responses. And as someone who's been in court, it's a terrifying experience, whether you're there, you know, as a professional giving evidence. And I would imagine 
if it's you giving your testimony about your own personal experience, and I know from clients I've worked with, it's even more terrifying. So if you put a victim under duress and under pressure, and they're talking about things from years ago, again, you'll probably find inconsistencies. And if you haven't got a trauma-informed response, and you're an attorney, a lawyer that's going to be doing the cross, i.e. you're hostile, then it's not going to be a, a good environment to probably elicit the best information from someone. But perhaps you can talk far better and eloquently about that. But I, I do think that that's a, something that people overlook. And it's why we do see inconsistency. Totally. And I think this really gets to the heart of it, actually, this idea of inconsistency and what it says about credibility. And I think this trial shows us how that can go really, really wrong. Because even today, someone on Twitter was doing a thread saying, here's why he won. And she said, you know, it's important to know that Amber Heard contradicted herself. And that is always evidence of dishonesty and manipulation. And that's not true. Because if you ask people in their daily lives, they will make mistakes about memories. If you ask people to tell a story multiple times over many years in different settings, as you say, in a hostile setting versus in a more comfortable setting, they will make mistakes and they will have inconsistencies. We all do it. It's very, very natural. It does not mean that someone is lying. You know, it's a bit like what we're saying about Johnny Depp and his memory issues. It's not even necessarily that he intentionally lied about anything that did or didn't happen because his brain can't retrieve those memories properly. And it's the same with victims of abuse. But, you know, the problem is that with victims of abuse, as a society, we don't understand this yet. And the legal system certainly doesn't. And so it allows people to make conclusions about someone's credibility based on consistency, which the vast majority of the time has absolutely nothing to do with credibility. And in fact, and I'm writing a chapter about this in my next book at the moment, if you had a story about a traumatic memory that never changed over time, that was exactly consistent, it probably wouldn't be a traumatic memory because the definition of a traumatic memory is that the details are hard to retrieve and that you retrieve them very slowly. Fragments of it will come to you at different times. So, in fact, complete consistency will never be the case with victims of these kinds of crimes. And the fact that we still expect it is really concerning. And I think what the prosecutors did in the Ghislaine Maxwell trial, which worked really well in my opinion, was their second witness. So right off the bat was this expert in grooming and she was a a clinician. So she'd been treating victims of child sexual assault for 30 years. So she spoke about these patterns, but she also spoke about disclosure. And she told the jury, based on her own clinical treatment and research, how victims often disclose these things. So she said, for example, it's very unusual for someone to make their first disclosure to the police or any authority figure, including a parent. Most victims will make their first disclosure to a peer or a romantic partner or a friend. And she also said that their disclosure will almost always evolve over time because of the traumatic nature of the memory. So when they first disclose, it's usually something that's quite vague, like something very bad happened to me. And you're testing the waters. You're testing if it's a safe conversation in which to give graphic details. And if it's not, then the conversation ends there. And then over time, especially as people grow up, and again, Amber Heard was 23 when this relationship started. That is not, you know, that is not a kind of, that's not very old at all. So then over time, as you get older and you have relationships in which you feel safer, you start to disclose more detail. 
And courts see that as inconsistent because more recent interviews will have more details than earlier interviews. But what the Maxwell prosecutors did was they explained this before we heard from any witnesses. So it was the very beginning of the trial. And so after that, all of the evidence about stories changing over time didn't have the same sting to it because the jury had been told that that's quite common and actually it's more common than not. You know, it's much more common that that's how it would happen. And we didn't get that in this trial. You know, we didn't have anyone explaining how these kinds of memories work, why it might be that Amber Heard has told slightly different versions of these stories to different people or at different times in her life. You know, we didn't get any of that. So this idea that inconsistency equals dishonesty was kind of allowed to stand, I think. Yes. And I I find that hugely problematic from the thousands of victims that I've spoken to I see inconsistency. And as an analyst, you know, I'm looking for things that are congruent, not congruent. And cases are messy. People are messy. Abuse is messy. Memories are messy. It's not linear. If someone was telling the perfect story, as you say, I'd probably have a red flag on it, you know, and ask questions about it. But I think, you know, a lot of times we forgive that of perhaps men, but we're less forgiving around women. And that's what I was seeing a lot of the time. I mean, Amber Heard is certainly not the perfect victim. Johnny Depp is not the perfect person either. And he seems to have been forgiven for lots of things that have gone on. And she seems to be being held to a different standard. And I have a problem with that because it is a double standard. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. It is a double stand. And, you know, there were so many times that things he has said were disproven, things that he said on the stand were disproven by other witnesses. And, you know, I get messages every day about this trial. And, you know, when I say to people like, well, this witness contradicted something that he said, people are completely unwilling to accept it. So I do think it's a double standard. People are so happy to pick up on sometimes extremely minor inconsistencies in in her story, but are completely happy to overlook inconsistencies in his story. And, you know, in this way as well, I think this trial has really uh, shown how powerful those biases can be because so many people were willing to see her as a manipulative liar. And as soon as they were primed to see that, everything else was discounted. And I could see this in real time. You know, I was watching the trial and people were messaging me saying, you know, just interpreting things that was in a way that was so favourable to him and so critical of her, even though the number of inconsistencies was actually quite similar, you know, because neither of them have perfect memories. As you say, he was completely forgiven for being human in all sorts of ways. I think we saw this day after day that he was on the stand. People forgave him for being human and, and she wasn't given that kind of latitude at all. I was thinking yesterday, can you imagine what the public would have thought if she didn't wait for her her own verdict? You know, because he flew to the UK and played a show and got a standing ovation and he wasn't even in court when the verdict was read. He was in the pub in London. And I think if she had done that, she would never be forgiven for it. I agree. And I think we should all look to those double standards that we hold of what we forgive 
of perhaps if someone's male versus if someone's female, that she was dubbed a psychopath and a lot worse. I mean, the the memes and all the things going on TikTok and Twitter, I mean, we'll talk about that specifically because I have to say, for me, it's at unprecedented levels. I've never seen anything like this across my career of this level of vitriol and, and misogyny, quite frankly. And we don't just see it in society. We see it in our courtrooms. We see it all over the place, not just in in one way. So I think for me, that's what it really does highlight. And certain things that became like the makeup palette, for example, you know, the makeup palette that her Amber Heard's lawyer held up being the wrong makeup that she was using. And then it goes viral on TikTok and the makeup company come out and say, well, that specific makeup wasn't made at the time. And then that becomes kind of the the law on social media that Amber Heard lied. I mean, I heard that trafficking even in my circles. That she, and when you actually track it back, it was complete nonsense, basically. And that, I mean, I think this is a perfect example because when people repeat this to me, just on a very basic level, they say, Amber Heard got up on the stand and she said, this is the exact thing I used to use. That's absolutely not true. It was said in opening statements. It wasn't said by her. You know, even at that level, what's being repeated is false. It's misinformation. But also, when it was held up in opening statements, you know, that was a brand new makeup kit. The, the lawyer never said it was exactly this brand, didn't, didn't mention a brand at all. It was a prop, wasn't it? It was a prop. And it was just that on the video, it looked like the Milani correction kit. You know, it was never said that she used Milani correction kit, blah, blah, blah. That again was circulated. You know, they said they named this brand. That never happened. You can go back and, you know, I said this to you, I was like, just go back and watch it yourself. It never happened. You know, it is a myth that she said this Milani kit was used. And also, you know, Amber Heard is talking about covering up bruises going back to 2012. That's 10 years. So the idea that the lawyer was claiming this was the exact one right. 10 years ago. My makeup usually doesn't last more than 10 months. You know, like I'm not keeping exactly the same. And it's just the whole thing was a bit absurd, but you could it's, not talk people out of believing it. All kinds of people saw Amber that week and she didn't, uh, she didn't have any bruises on her face. Well, let me show you this. This is what Amber carried in her purse for the entire relationship with Johnny Depp. She's an actor. Do you honestly think she would have left her apartment ever without makeup? Do you think that she ever would have wanted other people to see her bruises and her cuts? This was what she used. She became very adept at it. And you're going to hear the testimony from Amber about how she had to mix the different colors for the different days of the bruises as they were as they developed in the different coloring and how she would use these to touch those up to be able to cover those. She also used concealer, foundation. You'll hear from a makeup uh, person that Amber didn't even leave her bedroom without having foundation on. And one of the people that was at the building testified. He said she had makeup on and it would have covered that bruise. Uh, yeah, this is what I was talking about as a color correction kit. This is not obviously the exact one I used to carry, but I used to carry it with me all the time. Sometimes this pink is sometimes a little bit more purple of a hue. And sometimes the kits are three colors. You can get them in three or four colors. Sometimes they have even more. But the idea is that you want to counteract whatever color you're working with on the bruise. Okay, I'm going to wrap the episode there. 
There's quite a lot to think about, and I know there's so much more to cover about this particular case and trial. So I hope you join me for part two of this fascinating interview with Lucia Osborne Crowley. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.